0: We have been uh, tackling Paul's defense of God's righteousness as it relates to the issue of sovereign election or predestination. And the big issue, really, in chapter 9, chapters 9 through 11, is Jewish unbelief, why the Jews as a people and the majority of individuals did not receive Jesus as their Messiah. And on An important addition to that question is, does their unbelief mean that God's promises have failed? That's the most important question. Because if God made promises to them that were guaranteeing a certain future for them and they didn't believe and didn't get it, then what about the promises he made to us? It's a good question. So, does their unbelief mean that God's promises have failed? Paul says, never. And he's going to build an argument on several points. The first chapter 9 he's going to build an argument based on divine election. In chapter 10 he's going to build an argument based on the theology of the Jews themselves and uh, what salvation is and what righteousness is and how it applies in salvation. In chapter 11 he's going to say that there's still a future for Israel. God has not only not failed them, he has a plan for them that is yet to come. The story is not over. But in chapter 9 he's dealing with this whole issue of God's sovereign choices. God's word has not failed, he is working out his own purpose in what has happened. Paul's answer includes both the faithfulness and the freedom of God to do what he wants. God is sovereign, and he determines the course of history in his own will. He does not get surprised, and he does not lose control. In chapter 11, he will explain exactly what is going on with Israel in terms of God's promise. But in chapter 9, Paul is explaining what is happening in terms of salvation and election. Verse 6, he says, They are not all Israel... Who are descended from Israel, and he says that right after he makes the uh, brings up the question. Um, it is not as though God's word has failed. God's word has not failed, and then he says, there are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, God chooses some for divine favor and passes over others." And he cites. The Old Testament examples here, which we've talked about in weeks previous, of Isaac chosen over Ishmael and then Jacob being chosen over Esau. And he emphasizes regarding these last two that they were twins, and yet one was chosen and one was not. And what happened to them was ordained by God and had nothing to do with being good or bad. Verse 11 says, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now when you say this, right away comes the challenge, in Paul's day and in our day, that if God chooses in this way, he would be unrighteous. It is inconceivable, some would say, that God would choose some for salvation and pass over others without regard to human distinctive, something that he sees in people. So the accusation assumes that a righteous God is acting on something he sees in men. For the Jews, this would be either their birth, that they are descended from Abraham, they would point to that, or their works, that they followed the law. Well, Paul disallowed God's choice by birth in verse 6 when he said not all are Israel who are descended from Israel. And then he gives those examples. And Paul disallows God's choice by human merit in verse 11 when he says the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, and it's not of works. So God's choice is God's according to his own purpose. Is God unrighteous then? That's the question that comes up. In verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice or unrighteousness with God, is there? Well, if you define righteousness, if your definition of righteousness is God choosing based on distinctions that he sees in people, then Paul would be saying that God is unrighteous because Paul says he doesn't do that. But Paul does not agree with that definition. That's why last week we spent the whole time examining the word righteous and righteousness as it applies to God in the Old Testament. We concluded that God's righteousness biblically is his zeal for his own glory which is always fitting and proper because he deserves all glory and honor and praise. To do anything less than act for the glory of his own name would be unrighteous for God must be true to who he is. So, to borrow John Piper's definition of God's righteousness It consists in his unswerving commitment always to act for the glory of his name. And Paul argues his definition by going to the Old Testament Scriptures themselves. Indeed, he goes to the very heart of Jewish experience, which would be the Exodus. Chapter 9, verse 15, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, this is plainly an expression of divine sovereignty in dispensing saving mercy. And I think it would be really helpful to see the full context of this verse in Exodus. Somebody was teasing me last week, they said, "Not only did you preach a whole sermon on one verse, you preached it on one word, which is not what I usually do, but, so this week it's gonna be just one verse because we're gonna spend a lot of time now in Exodus. So go on back there to Exodus because I'm gonna explain this text in its context. It's very important to understand it in its context, I think. So turn to Exodus chapter 24, um, really seeing Exodus, this quote from Exodus uh, in Exodus, reinforces the concept of righteousness in God, which we've discussed, and you can see in a historical situation this theological understanding of God's righteousness played out. That God's righteousness is his unswerving commitment always to act for the glory of his own name. Now, Exodus, of course, is the great rescue of the Israelites from bondage in Egypt by a series of divine acts, incredible miracles. It was a salvation or deliverance that was wholly achieved by God himself. Fantastic miracles were the norm for that unique time. God even overthrows with complete destruction an Egyptian army sent after Israel, the most powerful army of the day. Once delivered, God brings them to Mount Sinai, and God speaks to them the Ten Commandments, but they are so utterly fearful of his voice and his glory that they don't want to hear God speak to them. So he summons Moses up to the top of the mountain to receive God's law in more detail, and Moses is given the task of go-between or mediator between God and the people. Now, that all happens in chapter 19 and 20. In the middle of chapter 20 through 23, Moses is given more detailed revelation um, and several very clear warnings about the evil of idolatry. Of course, there's the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, which has the warning about idolatry, but there's a couple other places where it's re-emphasized. Then in chapter 24, where I want you to look, Moses returns to the people, tells them everything God said, and wrote it all down, the text says. And they build an altar, and they worship, and Moses reads the words of God that he wrote down. After he'd already shared it with them, he reads it to them again. So it's already written. Then we can see the people's response in verse 7 of chapter 24. They took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And that is the Mosaic covenant in the Old Testament. The people with full knowledge of all God's commands promised to follow them. And the blood represents what all ancient covenants intend, that a death should come upon the one who would break the covenant. That's what the blood is for. If you remember in, earlier in, uh, in Genesis chapter 17 when Abraham receives his divine vision and he sees these animals cut in two and the smoking furnace passing between the cut animals. That's the way people would make a covenant in the ancient world. They'd chop an animal in two and pass between the pieces together. And the idea is, may this happen to me if I break my word. So Moses is sprinkling the blood on the people. They would understand exactly what was going on. Then follows an amazing um, a moment of fellowship between the leaders of Israel and the Lord himself, his, in his presence. Probably a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, although we can't prove that. But Verse 9, it says that Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they beheld God, and they ate and drank. For there is fellowship in the presence of God. Now, in verse 12, this is the part we all know. Moses is invited up to the mountaintop to receive even more revelation. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua and his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And Moses, um, I'm sorry, into the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. That's the part we know. Less than six weeks. Then in chapters 25 through 31 contain all the detailed revelation that Moses received about the religious system of Israel and the tabernacle and the priesthood and all of that while he was there on the mountain. Now, Um, it comes to an end with a beautiful um, divine gift that God gave to Moses. If you look at um, verse 18 of chapter 31, it says, When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. It's a remarkable thing. Then, Exodus 32, we are taken back down the mountain to see what's been going on. And it's really unbelievable. In the face of all that they had experienced and all that they had seen and all that they'd been told and all that they'd promised to do. In just a few weeks time, the place just goes nuts. People just go totally their own way. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, come. Make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Moses said he'd be back. I think we should just wait. No, he didn't say that. He said, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf and they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Notice it's the Lord's name, Jehovah's name, God's name. They're saying that the calf is him. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And they went playing backgammon or something. Um, Utterly, tragically rebellious, defiant, wicked madness. And Aaron, a complete coward, fully participates, even declaring a feast, a pagan sort of feast. And Moses is up there enjoying the presence of God. He's in the possession of the tablets written with the finger of God. And in some sense, uh, God's demeanor changes, and he starts to tell him, what's going on. Verse 9, I have seen this people and behold they are an obstinate people. A stiff-necked people, stubborn, unteachable. And now that God said this of the Exodus generation, um, that should not be forgotten when we talk about the subject of the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, which is Paul's subject in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Keep that in mind, what God said about them. God tells Moses he is finished and um, he makes Moses an offer in verse 10. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. That's, a, that's a really amazing. Moses, let's just start over. We'll just start over. It's a staggering offer. So when Paul would sit down to write the book of Romans he wouldn't talk about the children of Abraham he'd talk about the children of Moses. That's what God's offering Moses. Because that's what these people deserve, to lose their place in redemptive history. Now, God says this not because it's going to happen, but because he wants, because he knows, he's made promises to Abraham, he's going to fulfill his promises, It's already all set. But he wants Moses to say what Moses is going to say. He's drawing out of Moses a prayer um, of love and compassion for his own people. He is giving Moses a wonderful opportunity To express humble prayer. And Moses' prayer is wonderful. It's selfless. He doesn't want to be the new Abraham. That's not what he wants. Because he believes that such an act would diminish God's reputation. Look at his wonderful prayer of intercession, verse 11. And pay attention to the basis for his request. Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why doth thine anger burn against thy people whom thou hast brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind about doing harm to thy people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by thyself and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. He doesn't plead that the people aren't wicked. He doesn't say, well, you know, maybe they didn't really understand. Or he, doesn't make, he doesn't make any excuses. They deserve the worst in perfect justice. But he does plead on behalf of God's reputation. Why should the Egyptians say God brought them out to destroy them? And he also pleads based on God's promises. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that you promised them these descendants and this land forever. So Moses' prayer is entirely God-centered and expresses concern for God's glory. And God relents, he listens to him. Now, I don't believe for a minute God would break his promises to Abraham, but by saying what he did, he let Moses shine in his love and his humility and his faith. And you know, the next part is very familiar. Moses and Joshua return. They start coming down the mountain. Moses was higher up and Joshua was waiting for him and comes down, picks up Joshua. Moses, with the precious... Tablets in his hands, carved by the fingers of God. And what's well, it's really interesting thing is that how the whole text just kind of slows down in verses 15 and 16. You've got all this exciting stuff going on. It just stops to tell you about the tablets. It says Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and on the other. And the tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Precious. Beautiful, sacred, unique, utterly unique things in the whole world written with God's own writing. Moses picks up Joshua on the way down and Joshua says, I hear the sound of war down in the camp. And Moses says, no, it's the sound of singing that I hear. And they get down there in verse 19 and he arrives and he surveys the scene and the golden calf and the altar to it and the party. And the loose dancing and the debauchery and he becomes furious. And how unworthy these people are just grips his mind to have these precious tablets that he has in his hands and he takes them and he just smashes them on the ground. And then verse 20 says, He took the calf which they made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of water and made the sons of Israel drink it. He makes them drink it, a venerable old way of making people feel their accountability for what they've done. When I was in high school, if they caught you smoking in the bathroom, you would have to eat the cigarettes. It's the same idea. <laughs> and it gives Aaron just a tongue-lashing. Then occurs the part they don't show in the movies, verse 25, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate to gate in the camp and kill. Every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. Sin is serious stuff. And there was a partial execution of what the whole group deserved. It was a partial chastisement. And Moses has got to be personally devastated. He's pleading with the people when he gets there and sees it for himself, he's just undone. And I'm sure he feels that he's been a failure as a leader. He goes back to the Lord and he pleads for forgiveness, even offering his own soul in exchange. Verse 32 says, Now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from the book which thou hast written. If you're not going to forgive them, I don't want it either. Just destroy me too. He's still interceding. And God tells Moses then that each man has to bear his own sin and to go ahead and lead the people. And now it gets really interesting. Not that it hasn't been interesting, but it's getting theologically even more interesting. The sin of the Israelites has put distance between them and the Lord. And this distance is not going to be easily healed. Things are not the same, and their faithlessness has created a barrier. And whereas earlier God had planned personally to go with them, now he says he's going to send an angel to go with them. Chapter 33, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, lest I destroy you on the way. If I go, you'll never get there, because you'll all be dead. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I will do with you." So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb on. Now, the next paragraph describes how Moses maintained a mediator's role. And how unique in all the Bible was Moses' intimate conversational relationship with God. It's totally different. That's why it talks about him that way, as being so unique. It says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Now, we're starting to approach the Romans 9.15 text. Paul, there, was reminding his Jewish readers of some very important realities. But we're not done yet. Moses has a remarkable exchange with God now because things are so terribly strained that Moses wants some assurance that God will be with him and the people. And he wants to know God better. You know, it's an incredible challenge leading these stiff-necked people, and now that God is partially withdrawing, Moses is pleading with him not to do that. God said, should I go up with you one moment, I would destroy you. But Moses wants God there. A hundred percent there. He wants his presence there. With no repercussions. And because God allowed Moses such direct access to him, Moses takes advantage of it and humbly but boldly pleads His desires. Verse 12, chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, thou dost say to me, Bring up this people, but thou thyself hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moreover, thou hast said, I have known you by name, and I have also you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found favor in my sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee, so that I may find favor in thy sight. Consider too that this nation is thy people. He's got two things going now. He's insisting, well, he's seeking two things. He wants to know God and he wants to have God take the Israelites for his own. As they are. And the answer in verse 14 is very encouraging. He says, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses continues, verse 15. If thy presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not by thy going with us, so that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? He's insisting, he must know, God will be with us, or let's not do it at all. Isn't being the people of God By definition, having him with them? Isn't that what sets them apart, he says? says? Then the answer is again encouraging. Verse 17, the Lord said, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And Moses, overwhelmed with God's favor, and he wants to know more, more about God's nature. In verse 18, he says, I pray thee, Show me thy glory. Now remember, we're living on this side of sacred history. I mean, we know so much more. We know the whole story. We have full revelation of God's dealing with Israel and the whole world, prophetically. We know Christ... All the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form, he who came to explain the Father to the world. We have, we have Moses already. We have the prophets. We have the Gospels. We have the epistles. We have the Psalms. We have the Proverbs. We have all that stuff Moses didn't have. Did have Moses was relating to a God he didn't, he didn't know that much about. What is God like? What defines him? What most truly characterizes him? When a man deals with God what, God, what can he count on? I pray thee, show me thy glory. Now watch. God gets very specific. Verse 19. And he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will, pro- will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and here's Romans 9.15. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. That's how God defines himself to Moses. God's goodness, his name, and what was his, what's God's righteousness? His own zeal for the glory of his own name, right? His name is seen in his sovereignly granting grace and compassion. I want to go a little farther because all these elements come together as God passes by Moses in a theophany, a kind of an appearance. So in verse 20 through 23, God tells Moses it will kill him to see the fullness of God's glory, but he will be given a glimpse. Then in chapter 34, verse 1, God tells him to make two fresh, unmarked stone tablets and bring them with him. We'll pick it up in verse 4. It says, So he cut two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship, and he said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate. And do thou pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as thy own possession. And right there it all comes together. God is holy as regards sin. He punishes, but the glory of God is seen in that As well, he is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth and keeps loving kindness for thousands. And the words Moses needed to hear, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And that is the God Moses is dealing with. So hearing this, Moses bows and worships. And based on what God has revealed, he asks God to be all of that to those who strayed and have worshipped an idol of gold. And God says he will. He appeals to the free mercy of God. You are compassionate. Be compassionate even on those fairly undeserving, stiff-necked, obstinate people. Forgive us and make us your own possession. And you know what? That's exactly what God does. Verse 10, And God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you will live. Will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. And he goes on and explains all that. Romans 9.14, is God unrighteous? No. His kindness to the Jews His kindness to anyone has always been an act of free grace undeserved mercy the essence of His divine nature is that He is free to dispense mercy as He wills and for His own reasons so then Romans 9.16 says so then this is the theological conclusion It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That any sinner is saved, that you are saved or that I am saved, is God's acting for his own glory as he loves the unlovely, as he rescues his own enemies? As he forgives intolerable wickedness, as he redeems lost souls and like a shepherd goes out and seeks them. And he owes it to nobody, but he grants it to some. Salvation is not about us, and Paul says it's not about anything in us, not even our wills, not our activity. It's about his mercy and grace and compassion and abounding loving kindness. How can God be unrighteous when righteousness means being thoroughly committed to his own name and glory and his name and glory is his freely dispensing compassion and mercy according to his own will. He's not unrighteous. Electing grace is God's very nature. Hence, he is truly righteous. Righteous. Now, Paul has another example in Romans 9, an example that tells us how God can withhold mercy and harden some people. Another example from the time of the Exodus. Pharaoh, who was held by God's power in an unrepentant state for the glory of God. Now, that brings an accusation, too, because people say, then how can we be blamed for sin? And that's for next week. We have two more weeks in Romans chapter 9, and because it's so gnarly, and because I have long discussions after church every Sunday, um, in two weeks, next week we're going to look at this next larger section, we'll take more than one verse, more than one word, promise. And then we're going to finish up the chapter the second in two weeks, and the, and in two weeks we'll have a question and answer time in here, which is not something we do very often, but you can get it all sorted out, okay, you can say, I still don't get all that, that doesn't make any sense, what about this, what about that? So I'm not covering your questions, you can ask them, okay? We'll, we'll work that out. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself as a God who is gracious and compassionate. And indeed, Lord, the day we understand we don't deserve it, but you grant it, is the day we really know who you are and who we are. We thank you for your electing grace because, as it says in Romans chapter 3, none seek for you, none love you, none want to follow you. And if you just left it up to us, none of us would be saved. So we thank you for the divine choice that grants mercy, not based on our will or our running around, but by your own compassion. We thank you for that. It's a great comfort because there's security in that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.